one in 422 adults entered insolvency between 1st of July 2022 and 30th of June 2023. Economic factor is crucial, no doubt, in considering insolvency for many individuals, particularly when personal individual voluntary arrangement and debt relief orders are concerned. Many argue that debt relief order could have been a better option for a number of early termination cases related to IVA. Welcome to Debt Talk Podcast with me as your host, Ripon Ray. The subject I'm going to cover, and you may have guessed it, debt relief order or IVA. That is really the question. To explore this topic, I've experts from the debt advice and financial services market. They're also to provide Debt Talk podcast listeners with top tips to address some of the challenges currently being faced by vulnerable communities with the failure of IVA providers. I have Sarah Williams, founder of Debt Camel, and a debt expert. She has been campaigning around IVA for at least five years. And finally, Kevin Steele, CEO of Demsa, a trade body for debt solution providers. Many organizations he works with include profit and non-profit sectors, which also includes insolvency practitioners who oversee IVA. Before I get deep into DRO and IVA, let me get Sarah Williams, founder of Debt Camel, into the conversation. Sarah, before we get deep into the discussion on DRO and IVA, can you explain the main differences between an IVA and DRO and why DRO was introduced in 2009? Thanks, for, thanks, Ripon, and thanks for inviting me on. I guess I'm going to start by talking about not IVAs and DROs, but IVAs and bankruptcy, because that's really where it all began before DROs came in in 2009. And I'm mainly talking here from the point of view of somebody with problems, debts, and a debt advisor's looking at debt options for that client. And so very broad brush, because we'll be talking about a lot of these in, in the rest of the podcast, the key differences between IVA and bankruptcy, I would summarise as, firstly, in bankruptcy, your assets are at risk. This is most important for a house with equity and a car worth over £2,000. Very few people lose any other possessions in bankruptcy. Most other possessions aren't at risk. The second point is how long these procedures take. Bankruptcy is all over for the majority of people in a year. A small minority of people have to make monthly payments for three years. IVAs are usually there for five or six years, and they're often extended as people have to take payment breaks. So they last a lot longer than bankruptcy. Essentially, the price you're paying for protecting your assets in an IVA is making payments for a much, much longer period. And to do with how long this, these things go on for, bankruptcy never fails. It's all over in a year. A lot of IVAs, possibly more than a third, do fail, leaving people back with their debts, or most of them, there's often not much has been paid off the debts at all during the uh, years you've been struggling with an IVA that eventually fails. And the other point which you need to bear in mind is 
who makes money from these. Debt advice agencies make large fees from setting up IBAs and other firms make large fees from selling people's details onto IBA firms. Nobody makes any money at all from advising you to go bankrupt. So if you have a firm which is advising you that you should go to an IBA rather than bankruptcy, ask the hard questions because that firm is going to make a lot more money out of you if you go for the IBA option rather than bankruptcy. So those were the two options up to 2009 when debt relief orders were introduced. They were introduced in 2009 as a simple form of bankruptcy. I often use the American expression bankruptcy light. Um, they're intended for people who have no assets to protect, who wouldn't have to make any monthly payments in bankruptcy because they're disposable income. The amount of money they have left over each month after they've paid their essential bills and living expenses is too low. DROs have a lower fee at the start, no monthly payments, and are completely finished within a year. And they have a very low failure rate. This is what we've got at the start. We've got one option, which your assets are at risk, bankruptcy. Debt relief orders, your assets aren't at risk because you don't have any that needs to be protected. IVAs protect assets, but at the price of making monthly payments, sometimes large, for a considerable length of time, and IVAs go wrong, whereas bankruptcy and DROs, bankruptcy never goes wrong, DROs very, very rarely do. Yeah are also dealing with a number of queries through your blog where individuals and advisors ask numerous questions around technical issues linked with DRO and IVA. But from your point of view, what are the major issues and case studies that you've seen and heard through your work? Okay, um, I'm not just dealing with the ones that I come across. I'm talking about um, free sector debt advisors um, in in general, because we are the people that often see um, failing IVAs coming through. So I would divide the IVA problems up into four sorts of issues. First, missold IVAs. One, which you should never have had an IVA in the first place because a debt relief order or bankruptcy would have been in that client's best interest. Here, very often, the IVA will fail, um, and they then have to sort out what to do with their debts, which could be going into another form of insolvency. Secondly is the other variety of missold IVAs, which aren't talked about as much, because from the debt advice point of view, they're not quite such horror stories as people that should simply have had a debt relief order. These are missold IVAs where the client had no real need of an insolvency procedure at all. And either temporary token payments or a debt management plan, which is much more flexible, uh, would have been better. These cases aren't just problematic from the point of view of somebody being given really bad debt advice to go into them, but also from the creditor perspective, because the creditors end up getting paid a lot less money because the IVA firms take so much of what the uh, the person with the IVA actually pays and so much of that goes to the IVA firm and not to the creditors at all. The third set of problems are problems that crop up within an IVA where a key aspect wasn't explained to the 
consumer at the start because many people simply don't understand the language which is involved and they certainly don't read you know 20 30 40 50 pages of details which are sent so these key aspects which are routinely miss either not explained at all or badly explained so the client didn't understand what they were being told are things like how IVA payments increase if their income increases, the problems that can happen um, when a PCP car finance deal ends in the middle of an IVA or if the car finance lender repossesses the car, very likely problems that will arise if the person needs a new private tenancy. And if a person has got a house with a mortgage, the equity release provisions, in particular, the need to take an expense, possibly take an expensive long-term secured loan, are not properly explained to the client before they choose the IVA. So these can all come as an extremely nasty shock when you're in an IVA, at which point it is too late to get out of it. And the fourth set of issues that crop up with IVAs are just fundamentally their lack of flexibility. There is some flexibility in there to reduce payments. But if you have redundancy, another child, high childcare costs, you separate from your partner, you get hit by high cost of living increases. IVAs are frequently not flexible enough. And over a five or six year period, these sorts of problems do crop up. And these matter, especially when we're talking about low payment IVAs. If you're paying five or six hundred pounds a month into an IVA, there's quite a lot of what I call wiggle room. You can reduce that quite a bit if your rent goes up or your mortgage goes up. But if you're only paying £130 a month into your IVA, there's no wiggle room at all if your rent and mortgage goes up £200 a month. So there's a fundamental lack of flexibility in IVAs when things happen which are not the client's fault. And those could be other reasons where IVAs end up failing. Although debt advice, no doubt, is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and IVA providers, i.e. insolvency practitioners, are not, is that the issue? Well, it's up to the regulators to construct a framework for whatever the debt solutions are. And I think the current situation isn't at all helpful. It may have seemed logical many years ago for the for a treasury exemption so that uh, somebody who is giving debt advice in expectation of an insolvency solution shouldn't have to be authorised as a debt advisor, authorised now by the FCA. But this isn't really how IVAs have grown up. IVAs used to be products for people with large debts who had assets to protect and or uh, the sort of job like members of parliament, solicitors, where you can't go bankrupt. These, these were quite niche products and those were who they were meant for originally. But now we have IVAs which are being routinely sold as a normal debt solution. And it just isn't logical that the advice on those should be separate in any way from the general advice as to whether somebody should be looking at a debt management plan, not insolvency at all, a debt relief order or bankruptcy. And from what free sector debt advisors see, 
a lot of people are being given seriously bad advice that isn't in their interest. So I think the regulatory bodies need to come together and at least however the insolvency options are dealt with from the point that they're initiated, the initial advice at least should be common for whatever you're going for. And that should be given by pre-sector debt advisors who are giving advice which is in the best interests of the client. Not from an insolvency practitioner who has to balance the interests of creditors and debtors, and not from anyone whose main interest is in the actual fees they're getting. What do you think the government is doing to address some of the issues that you have come across and the free debt sector has come across? You talked about Miss Soul IVA, Varied IVA. So what could, I suppose, the government can do to address some of the issues to deal with vulnerable Okay, well, well, there are a lot of quite specific things. So far, I've talked quite broad brush, but let's pull out some other examples of problems with IVAs, because a lot of these could be tackled within the current framework if there was the will to do so. First of all, we've got the problem that many clients who are being coached by an introducer in what to say to an IVA firm. So I've had people who've literally told me, I was told I would be asked these questions and these are the answers to give. This is so that something could be manipulated to look like an IVA, where somebody is entirely unsuitable for an IVA, either because they're not insolvent at all, or perhaps they should have had a debt relief order. So the IVA firms are not doing the basic checks that the income and expenditures they have been given isn't a work of fiction, or that there aren't debts that are admitted, because people come to debt advice and say, my IVA is failing, I've got these rent arrears, council tax arrears, and they were there at the start. They were there when the IVA started, and the IVA firm never asked about them or completely ignored them when the, when the IVA was set up. So that, I think, has to stop. The IVA firms have to do proper investigations themselves, not take anything for granted on what they're told. Other problems are the way that some IVA firms just treat disability payments as just another source of income you've got coming in. But the IVA firm doesn't put the work into finding out from talking to the person with the debts, who's often vulnerable and and not really very sure what's going on, what the extra costs of their disability are. If you go to a free sector debt advisor, that that would be done properly. Then we've got the inappropriate advertising, particularly on social media. It can prey on the fear of bailiffs or the desire for a really simple solution. It can make IVA sound really, really easy, reduce everything to, you know, a simple £140 a month payment. Don't explain about what fails. They don't explain about how that £140 may turn out to be a lot more um, after your first review reveals that you your income expenditure at the start wasn't really what your income expenditure is. Clients are often told things which are technically legally correct, such as if you go for a debt management plan, well, it's not guaranteed that interest would be stopped or charges, which is true. What they're not told is that in almost all cases, that interest is stopped in the debt management plan. And if it isn't, you can complain 
because it's normally an administrative cock-up by the lender who has failed to spot that you're in a debt management plan. So people are told legally correct things, but which slant the whole thing. So they're forced down a route, which ends up making IBAs look wonderful and everything else look not very good at all. And the clients aren't told about the high IBA failure rate. There should be a simple explanation given to every single client by any IBA firm of how many IVAs are failing overall and of how many that firm has failing. This is just glossed over. People don't realise this is happening at all. And one of the problems here is that people can't choose which IVA firm to go for. Suppose an IVA is your best option. You've still got to choose which IVA firm to go for. And there is absolutely no way to make this decision apart from misleading adverts all over social media or or lovely looking websites which don't give much clue really about anything. People aren't told that if they go with one firm, they can just be sold on to another IVA firm. I've come across people on their fourth IVA firm. That's unlucky. Um, but you know, it's not uncommon for your IVA um, to be sold on to a different firm. And it, it routinely happens. To, to, to many people. And lastly, there's no independent ombudsman service that can look at the problems. When, if you have a problem, with, either with mis-selling at the start um, or problems that happen within an IVA. And once you're in an IVA, the clients are in a very vulnerable position because there's a complete power imbalance here. As far as they're concerned, an IVA was the right thing. It doesn't seem to be going very well but they don't particularly want it to fail and, and be left back with their debts. So they don't have the knowledge to be able to dispute what the IVA firm is telling them. Often now they're not even dealing with a call centre in the UK. Before you get your IVA, you're, you know, you're talking to somebody who's really, really interested in your case. You can get hold of them at any time, day or night, to talk through your problems and your concerns. You've got the A-team for customer service. As soon as the IVA has gone in, you're transferred over to the D-team for customer services, who's based somewhere abroad. And when you tell them your heating bills have gone up, they really don't have much idea what it's like to try and live in Britain with no heating through a British winter. So we've got a really, really difficult world here. I think the regulators and the firms can correct a lot of these if they actually put their minds to it and see these as a real set of problems that they have to correct for a very vulnerable group of people rather than just try to make as much money out of this as possible. So let me just recap. What do you want to see happen moving forward? Well, first of all, I, the insolvency service is looking at reform of the whole personal insolvency sector. And I agree that is a really important thing to happen. One of the problems at the moment with having three different sorts of insolvency is if your situations change, it's not easy to switch from one to the other. If we had a unified form of insolvency with just different options on how much you would pay and, and what assets are at risk, then it would be easier to change between them if your situations change. We also need reform so that clients don't effectively fall through the cracks. So when I describe the three sorts of personal insolvency we got in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, one of the problems is that we are coming as pre-debt advisors, increasing numbers of people for whom none of these insolvency options are suitable. 
but who have in unmanageable debt. So these are the sort of people where we need there to be an insolvency solution. But these are people who either would be eligible for DRO, and it is their perfect form of, debt, um, of insolvency solution, except you can only have one every six years. We need that change so that you can get a debt relief order more often than once every six years. We've got somebody who really should be going bankrupt, but who has no disposable income at all. They've got perhaps negative disposable income. They have no chance of raising the bankruptcy fees to go bankrupt because it's just way too large and just impossible for them. Or we've got people who have got little or no disposable income, but they've got assets to protect. An IVA is entirely unsuitable because they wouldn't be able to get through the five or six years of it. They don't have enough money to be able to make monthly payments. So there are people for whom there is no option. So we need these to be brought in with options which are sensible for everybody in the country who has got unmanageable debt, because it's in nobody's interests, not the debtors, not the creditors, not the economy overall, that we should have people trapped in unmanageable debt, perhaps making token payments for many years. That's that's not good for anyone. We need the insolvency solutions to be sorted out. So the broad brush insolvency service reform is needed and the insolvency service needs to look at that. But that's going to take years. Realistically, you know, it, it just can't be introduced by January, even though it's needed, which has been needed for years. So I think we have to look at um, quick options which can improve the current situation whilst the insolvency service makes its very, very slow progress towards looking at root and branch reform of personal insolvency. So things that would help, um, first of all, bankruptcy fees should either be removed or they should be subject to a means test. Um, secondly, all eligible debts should be included in a DRO, even if they're not listed, which would bring them in line with bankruptcy. This will make DROs much simpler to set up, simpler for the debt advice organisation, cost less for the debt organisation. And it would also uh, mean they can go in quicker and we don't get so many problems when later a debt pops up that the client simply didn't know about. The values of cars permitted in a debt relief order of bankruptcy need to be significantly introduced. £2,000 is just not enough for a reliable car. And there is no point in somebody who's got very little money trying being told, well, you can manage with, with an old banger because they don't have the spare uh, income to be able to deal with the car repairs and things, particularly with things like the ULES coming in, you can't get a car for under £2,000 in London that will meet the ULES requirements. So those, I think, need to be introduced significantly. It makes no sense at all to force people through an IVA process in order to try to protect a car that's worth four or £5,000. I think it would also help if there was a ban on all IVA referral fees. The FCA is introducing that for... Um, the what it calls debt packages, mm -hmm. the group of firms whose sole income or you know ninety five percent of their income comes from making referrals from IVAs, because the FCA has looked at those and said 
well, you're not giving proper debt advice. They've looked at large numbers of the cases and people are just routinely being given poor advice or the ones that are IVA suitable are being shipped off for IVAs and the rest are told, oh, contact, you know, contact maps and go and talk to somebody else about a DRO. They don't care about those because they don't make any money out of them. So the FCA is trying to clear up the area it is authorising, but a lot of the lead generators that do this job of advertising on social media to trawl in people for potential IVAs aren't FCA authorised at all. They are putting out them simply dreadful adverts, adverts pretending to be charities, really misleading. And they are selling their cases onto IVA firms. The insolvency service and the recognised professional bodies that, re that um, regulate the insolvency practitioners need to get a grip on that. It needs to be stopped so there are no fees payable at all. Just cut off this source of fees will stop most of the horror adverts that are going out at the moment. And then I think we also need to look at making changes to the IVA protocol. That's the, um, the standard terms and conditions for most IVAs. They can be changed, but this is what people start with. Uh, most people start with so that an IVA only fails if a debtor has deliberately breached a rule, not just because they're unable to pay because their rent's gone up or their energy bill has tripled. If they can't finish paying for the IVA for that sort of reason, the IVA should simply be completed and the debts wiped out without the need for any creditor approval. If you put all this lot together, and there are other things as well. We should be getting rid of the secured loan clause. Uh, IBA payments should be automatically reduced if priority debts increase without the need for creditor approval. If we put all these things together, we can actually improve bankruptcy, debt relief orders and IBAs without having the root and branch reform of insolvency, which is going to take such a long while. Let me get Kevin still into the conversation because he spends a lot of his time uh, with different government departments and uh, within the context of financial services matters. Based on what you've heard, Kevin, what is your initial thought and what you've heard from Sarah? A lot of the points Sarah's made, I would you know absolutely agree with. So, you know, the key element here, I think we, my trade body represents that, you know, high quality standards in debt advice that are FCA regulated. And most of the debt solution providers have been through two thematic reviews and are about to go on up through another one with the FCA this year. So I think the concept that you have a um, consistent funnel to go into with high quality debt advice, I think is paramount importance. I think there are other aspects that Sarah has touched upon today where there is a requirement for much more joined up approach. Uh, and particularly here, we touch upon things like the perimeter. So the FCA taking everything to their perimeter, um, but then relying on the RPBs, the regulatory professional bodies and the insolvency service to pick up the mantle. Now, what is significant in the last few months, and I stress it is the last few months, um, Bodies like the uh, Insolvency Practitioners Association have put out very, very strong um, messages 
And what's why that's important is the IPA represent most of the volume providers in the IVA market. And in reality, you've got to look at it on the basis that one provider absolutely dominates this sector. Um, and that is particularly key when one is looking over over 100,000 IVAs. Uh, and in totality, the, the, there was only 386,000 at the end of last year. You can see the, the level of market dominance. Um, so that's pretty important. But what that's also talked about is not only disclosure of rewards, um, disclosure of the debt advice that was undertaken, raising the quality standards. Uh, and what I think is important here, because I, I do actually believe the IVA is a very good product if properly advised. Uh, and again, where we separate between DRO eligibility, I would be of the, the camp of Sarah as well, that if somebody is eligible for a DRO, then that's likely to be the right solution almost always over an IVA. Uh, and the important thing is you do your due diligence when you're actually doing the front end work. And if you are borderline, whether that be disposable income, whether that be debt level and agree with Sarah about shaking the tree to identify particularly things like central and local government debts, that somebody is truly eligible. I also totally agree with regard to the old banger. You know, that should be something that should have been raised a while ago. But I'm also concerned in the work that I do in my sector, that you do need to do a lot of drill down into general assets, because even if you look at the cost of home insurance, it's likely to identify that you've got well above the minimum threshold um, that you're looking at here. So often for people that we deal with in the commercial sector, you will often find there will be quite a lot of scrutiny around the assets themselves. So so all of those things I, I, I believe are important, but there are a lot of actions being talked about, and I'll talk about some of the initiatives that are going on at the moment and how we join them up. But there should be basically four lines of defence here, and the first of which is beginning to improve, just say beginning, because my concern is there's still a huge amount of, or a lack of awareness of sources of free debt advice, including Money Helper and the likes of Step Change. So if you consider probably the average number of debts going into an IVA or a debt management plan is just over seven, that client will have had an information sheet from their creditors multiple times. So not just one per creditor. And that identifies sources of free debt advice. So routinely, that would be citizens advice, national debt line, and step change. So why is it that we have programs like Panorama where individuals featured who have no awareness of sources of debt advice. That, to me, is truly worrying. The MAPS, the Money and Pension Service Research and Financial Conduct Authority Research, as recently as July last year, highlighted this lack of awareness, which is worrying. So creditors need to do more to make people aware. They need to join the dots when somebody's going through early arrears into the default process and sometimes the fact it's on page two or page three of a letter seems to create a disconnect. So the consumer duty, which represents a lion's share of the creditors generally involved, is about intelligibility. It's about simplicity of language. It's making sure that consumers understand their options. So what you're beginning to see is a significant push by creditors and big debt purchasers I've seen doing this recently, like Lau Group, 
where they are beginning to put information on their websites around DROs, around IVAs, the debt remedies available. So that's the first line of defense. Consumers should be much more aware. So if they do get spammed or they do see something on social media, they can distinguish between a credible provider and a non-credible provider. And that includes perfectly legitimate firms who may be for-profit, who are properly regulated, properly supervised, they suffer the same problems. And they often suffer the same problem when somebody's in a debt solution, as step change have seen, people pretending to be them and then poach them off their DMP into an unsuitable IVA. So there are a lot of things here where you're going to find, you know, large sections of the industry violently agreeing. The second part to this is, is Sarah's point regarding having a universal funnel into debt advice, whether that be IVA providers becoming FCA um, approved in their own right um, or changing the exemption so they have to provide proper regulated activity under their RPB supervision, which is most likely to be the IPA. The third, and this is important as well, in March this year, the rules around what's called SIP 3.1 in the case of an IVA were beefed up and that includes a number of the elements that Sarah talked about in terms of disclosure of any rewards payable and what, what work they actually did in relation to that referral. So the debt advice into the SIP 3.1 process needs to be slick. You don't want to have to repeat everything if you're getting that through a legitimate debt advice provider. And you need to recognize the work that's undertaken. But that is effectively another line of defense to say, is this IVA suitable? And probably fourth line of defense, which is really important, not often referenced, I have to say, I'm a big lobbyist in this area, the creditors have to vote. And a creditor that doesn't vote or relies on their voting agent to vote uh, under the consumer duty as a regulated firm is probably going to find that if somebody ends up in the wrong solution, that results in consumer detriment, that will loop back to them to say, why didn't you vote? Or indeed, why did you block this? And it's ironic that there are a number of voting houses and that some of them have split their work across the voting houses. And I see cases where one voting house has voted for and one against. I would point out one of the things that I think Sarah's flagged earlier on, and I was quite concerned in the Panorama program, was that the reference that IVAs are for homeowners. And that's just simply not the case. So when you look in the volume world, you know, less than 11% of all IVAs are homeowners. One of the reasons for that is one of the voting agents has become more and more dominant and block almost every IVA proposal where there's slightly more equity than there is debt. And that results in people in 20 plus year DMPs, which is entirely unsuitable for most of those clients. Now it's then the regulated debt solution providers that have to justify those long plans when their recommendation would have been an IVA. And they know now, and what disturbs me is some of these aren't even getting to meeting of creditors now because they know what the voting habits are. And the, you know, the voting agents represent well over 80% of all IVA proposals. So there are a number of facets here and dimensions that don't require primary legislation, but they require 
a more responsible attitude under the consumer duty for a lot of these firms to make sure that they do vote. And that is critical to this particular process. Now, there are a number of areas that you, you touched upon. The debt packages that took effect on the 2nd of June, but more materially from the 2nd of October, where roughly 33 firms are, are, are probably going to leave the market um, and their appointed representatives. And it will be then interesting to see whether that door shuts as to whether we start seeing more unregulated activity with lead generators. The Money and Pension Service has also just issued its um, um, its findings from its deficit budget consultation that closed last December. Now, whilst it's a bit woolly in a number of areas, it does reflect many of the points that Sarah has, uh, has identified where people don't have debt solutions at the moment. Uh, you know, and when you've got citizens' advice saying nearly 50% of the people that they um, they see for debt advice sessions have no surplus income, that's pretty terrifying. You know, and step change, not as large, but still a sizable number over 30%. Pay plan, which is free to consumer, but for profit, just about 15%. So, you know, both the commercial sector and the free sector are seeing increasing numbers where a lot of these individuals don't really have a home to go to. And I also think another point that probably Sarah has touched upon today that is a wider discussion, I probably don't want to open a can of worms, and that is that a lot of the things that Sarah's talking about today are community debt advice, which is often face-to-face. -face. So channel is quite important. We're seeing a lot of big push towards digital, but really, some are more suitable to that channel than are others. And that normally is geared around complexity and also client choice. And the telephone for many years has been the primary method of engagement. And it's becoming increasingly mixed now where you can do a mixture of open banking. You can use online portals. You can use clever tools to do simpler activities. But in the main, you still probably need to make sure that critically when you're confirming advice, and producing a suitability statement. The suitability statement should cover all of the points that you discussed in the debt advice session, and the two should marry together. And one of the interesting things from the insolvency service announcement on volume providers on the 21st of August was around the requirement for call recordings all the way to the beginning, and that would include the lead generator. And this is where you're going to start finding some of the elements at the beginning which may have started in the Philippines, may have started in India, you know, do you think you can afford £90? And you're on a hiding to nothing afterwards if you end up doing, you know, a full review because the client's expectation was set much further forward. So I think the fact that the, you know, the insolvency service is now recognising some of the problems that Sarah's identified, pushed it down to the RPBs, we're now stepping up the level of QA that is actually required, but it's still nothing close to what the large debt solution providers like your step change, your pay plans, your money wellnesses, your money plus groups, your angel advances will be subject to. And most of those set their own bar, which will be pretty high. And that will be risk-based, which will particularly take account of vulnerability. And vulnerability is a huge topic so the FCA's new mantra is around sustainability in the cost of living crisis. 
treating people equally, you know, with regard to vulnerability, so they get equivalent outcomes. And that needs to be made consistent across the board. Uh, and that includes the creditors. So I was on the Fairness Group today, which is part of HM Treasury, discussing how HMRC, DWP, local authorities treat people in debt. We're having the same discussions with the likes of Ofgem and Ofwat with regard to other priority creditors, so that there is a consistency when debt advisors are engaging with people where they're increasingly presenting with priority arrears that how you can allocate payments effectively, consistently, so you've got half a hope of actually getting something that is likely to be sustainable. And that then relates to many of the points Sarah made, which is once something's onboarded, does it fail because it was missold or misadvised, or is it because you weren't able to horizon scan effectively enough around the client's behavior? And clients do behave you know, very differently. Uh, and we discussed those that you know can be badged around as a won't pay. They were perceived in, in the terms of the insolvency service as culpable, irresponsible, versus those that are unlucky or have had material changes in circumstance. So risk assessment is about you know many factors in it, and that includes the client themselves and how they're going to respond if they haven't previously consistently paid their creditors. So I come from a credit referencing background, and many consumers are interested in what happens to their credit file. That's a very important factor. But many continue to take out credit, and that's not strong evidence that they want to be debt-free as quickly as possible. So buy now, pay later, and other products have had a very big impact. Deferred credit, as Sarah's indicated, is something you need to shake the tree on to find out whether you've got another 16 deferred credit agreements coming down the pipeline in the next three months. So there's a lot of dimensions. The FCA is involved in many of them, the debt packages, borrowers in financial difficulty, regulating buy now, pay later. All of these are related as long as they're joined up. Money and pension services trying to raise the bar on quality assurance, not just in the firms that they fund. HM Treasury will revisit statutory debt repayment plans. Though, like Sarah, I'm not very optimistic we will see very much on that. So we need to improve DMPs as well. You know, there were a lot of findings from HM Treasury consultation that said we could build a better DMP. UK Finance supported that, as did both the free and um, for-profit sector. So it's something I'm working on quite strongly as to a number of areas that we can improve between creditors and the sector itself particularly as we enter another quality of debt advice review that's in the FCA business plan this year. You talked about a, a number of government bodies earlier on. In fact, you were in a meeting this morning. Um, are we getting a consultation around IVA and debt relief um, as we speak? Well, I think you have, and I think Sarah made reference to it. So the personal um, insolvency framework, uh, the, the, the results came out in August, Broadly, if without being too derogatory, basically kicked the you know the the can down the um, down the road to two thousand and twenty four. Now, I think a lot of the areas that Sarah's touched upon are priority areas like the cost of bankruptcy, uh, and we've drawn a lot of parallels with what's gone on in Scotland, where we believe some of the solutions there and the cost of the solutions are more appropriate. So, 
you know, consistent on debt advice, and this does apply to bankruptcy as well. You can enter bankruptcy online without any debt advice. That troubles me because a lot of the people that my sector engage with do have assets. And it's not the case that somebody falls out of the pub on a Friday night and goes bankrupt. Often they, they log in seven or eight times. But nonetheless, there should be consistency across this process. And I think that was one of the calls from many of the responses. There were an awful lot of elements in terms of improving IVAs that I fully supported, some probably more difficult to achieve, but amending the protocol is certainly one of the things that's within our power. And we should be looking at issues like assets, particularly, I think Sarah's indicated for a DRO, increasing it, but there are voting agencies that have artificially low asset values in an IVA where somebody genuinely needs their vehicle for their job and shouldn't be forced to sell. But those are becoming blocking factors uh, on a number of uh, um, proposals, uh, and they end up choosing a different solution for the wrong reasons, which, which causes me concern. Now, I think when we look at the regulators, we've also got to look at some of the government bodies. So where we do get changes through things like the, the debt management functional group, run by Treasury, they tend to influence the likes of DWP and HMRC. And uh, having been a program manager at HMRC through the pandemic, what I've seen is a massive transformation in terms of how they've adopted best practices. And most recently, they've adopted the economic abuse toolkit across 30,000 agents. Now, that probably wouldn't have happened at that scale a number of years ago. And then looking at areas that potentially cause detriment with DWP around attachment of earnings and the like, making sure everybody uses things like the single financial statement is really important. It's not perfect, but it's an effective way of looking at how you treat priority creditors, non-priority creditors, legal debts, and many of the things that the community debt advice uh, team see day in, day out that probably the big telephone operations don't see quite so acutely. So, so there does need to be joined up thinking. Treasury's got an important role to play, and then how that's pushed down through DWP into the likes of MAPS, how the FCA play into that. Uh, and I think at the moment we are beginning to see more joined up thinking. So when you've seen the UK Regulators Network with the DSEO letter going out to Ofgem, Ofwat, Ofcom, and FCA and applying it to those major creditors, that's a big step forward. Uh, and how you deal with people that are impacted by the cost of living. And we're also seeing that backed up by some pretty hefty fines and remuneration back to consumers, which is important to actually reinforce some of those messages. But where does IVA, DRO and consumer duty mean in reality in current times? So if there were a, a funnel which says everybody gets regulated debt advice and you are looking at the, the outcomes that consumers experience, then you'd be looking at those outcomes very carefully. And that, you know, if you're going to put somebody into a six-year remedy, means you have to monitor it fairly carefully. And when you look at it, that in all probability, you think it's going to succeed and that you identify items on the horizon that are likely to influence that. And for example, interest rates are very acute. So if you're looking 
at well over a million people likely to see a £400 increase in their mortgage in the next 18 months because they're on a variable rate at the moment, fixed rate. You know, all of these things have different time and impacts. If you can see that on the horizon and you haven't provided for it, then the likelihood is that's going to have a catastrophic effect on that debt remedy. And the same thing is true when you're looking at, will somebody retire during the course of this debt remedy? Uh, and are there ones that, that are more uh, appropriate? Now, the duty also places a huge um, focus on the client's objectives. And this is difficult if the client can't actually express their own objectives relatively articulately. So if you're going to turn around and say, I want to be debt-free as quickly as possible, then the first thing you're likely to discuss if somebody isn't eligible for a DRO is bankruptcy, because it will have that effect for all the reasons Sarah discussed. And then you get an immediate response, I don't want to go bankrupt. So by the end of this, without coercing the client, you're discussing you'd like to be debt-free at a rate you can afford. But there are other elements to that is when you see a client who genuinely wants to put all their disposable income to their debt versus somebody who believes they're in some form of budget plan that they only need to pay £150 a month until the debt is cleared. And those are all the factors that require explanation. So, so Sarah's quite right. You know, when you have an IVA proposal, the same is true in a debt management plan proposal. You have to look and explore those. Now, Mr. Phelan at the FCA in one of the recent podcasts, when we were communicating to the whole of the debt advice sector around the, their recent survey results that said 30% of debt advisors weren't aware of what the consumer duty was, let alone the impact of it, which is why we had the event on the 12th of July, which was pretty, I say, pretty terrifying at the time, was around he was seeing and has seen a suitability letter that's 96 pages long. Now, if you take that from simplicity and intelligibility, it's the complete opposite. You know, so how do we layer communications? How do we help debt advisors deliver this information in an intelligible format without feeling there's a pressure sale ongoing? that the client, you can evidence that they understand and you've brought them along with the journey rather than at the end of it saying, all I heard was blah, 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 which is often when you go back and survey customers after a debt advice session that they can only re you know remember the first 20 minutes of it. So there are a lot of obligations under the duty. Now, the one thing I will say on, on debt relief orders, you know, and this I think is a lot to do with you know, the lack of money, very few DROs get reviewed at any point after they're put in place. So I think it is relatively unbalanced in looking at whether somebody's circumstances change and whether it should be revoked. They're not because nobody's actually looking at them, you know, one year down the track. Now, having been involved in compliance, supervision, whether it be with the OFT before, all the way back to 2002 when we did the code approval scheme, DMPs, you have to review the suitability of advice every year. You have to reconsider all the debt remedies every year. And it's fairly unique in doing that. And IVA just has to look at the suitability of the IVA going forward as a statutory solution. But sometimes that review, when there's a change in circumstance, which you are duty-bound to do, is key. And one of the reasons SDRPs didn't progress was they were too rigid. 
they they were very unforgiving of one missed payment. They were very unforgiving around other changes in circumstances. So flexibility in a cost of living crisis is crucial, but that has to work both ways. Some people's circumstances will improve, others don't. Uh, and I think it is still the fact that despite everybody thinking when energy prices went up by £100 a month, wow, we're going to have a lot of IVA fails. We didn't. There is a lot of forbearance in IVA, in fact, probably more so than there were in the SDRP consultation to be able to adapt, go on payment holidays. Um, but I do agree with Sarah, there should be scenarios where switching a solution is probably less suitable to a DRO than um, actually writing the debts off because it's the most suitable thing to do. But again, it's looking at it, what's within our power to do. One requires primary legislation, the other one doesn't. And I would probably go for the option that says this is doable rather than hold your breath and wait until some legislation changes. For those who are listening to that talk podcast and want to share your experience or want to hear a subject of your choice, you can get in touch with me, ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on Twitter, yourdoctordebt. Let me go back to my panellists uh, who are coming from diverse backgrounds to provide Debt Talk listeners with top tips to resolve issues of DRO and IVA. Let me start with Sarah from Debt Camel. My top tip is simple. If you've got debt problems, never click on an advert on on social media. Go and talk to a reputable firm. If you're self-employed or you've got a small limited company, talk to Business Debtline. Otherwise, talk to a local firm of debt advisors, Citizens Advice or another local firm. And if you want telephone debt, talk to National Debtline on the telephone. That's a very easy tip. People can't be expected to look at websites and work out whether these are real or not. I came across one this morning. Legally, it doesn't actually say they're giving debt advice. It says they're giving free debt help. But it says you can speak to a professional debt advisor. Advisor's advice is free. We can help you untangle your debts. Our advisor will guide you through the process of becoming debt free. It's not actually saying they're giving debt advice, in which case they need to be FCA authorised. But some IBA firms are buying leads from this sort of entirely unregulated advice. And the simple way to chop this off is to prevent the buying of leads and just remove the need for these adverts at all, because somebody is paying for these adverts to go out on TikTok and Instagram. So cut off the money by preventing the buying of these adverts. I did like what Kevin was saying about consumer duty. That is such an important aspect. Creditors need know a lot. Sorry, not all creditors, but many creditors know a lot about a particular client. They should be saying, well, we know this client's vulnerable. There's nothing in the IVA which actually identifies that they're vulnerable. They should have a good feel quite often if they're a bank for what the income and expenditure should look like. They should be able to tell when what's been presented doesn't bear a great deal of resemblance to reality. And creditors need to know what is actually in this client's best interests. Is it an IVA? Is it a debt relief order? Should we just write off the debt completely? Um, and I don't think enough creditors are actually thinking about that when they're 
a lot of this is just going through the voting agents, um, as, as Kevin was talking about. One thing I would disagree with Kevin is where he says that, you know, the end-to-end call recordings will be a great help. They may not be as much help as you think because the cases that I hear when you actually talk to people that work for these firms, most of whom are not prepared to go on the record at all because they would be losing their jobs. A lot of them are saying, well, we have the call, call recordings. Of course, we have the call recordings. And then the salesmen call up the client off their own personal mobile, which isn't recorded at all. And the client doesn't realise what's going on there. And it's those personal call recordings which are of a salesman's personal mobile, which are often used to do the coaching as to what the client should say to an IVA firm. So the way to stop this is to prevent the paying of referral fees. Thank you, Sarah. Now, finally, Kevin from Demsa, what is your top tips? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the key things back to that creditor journey, um, i I think channel is really important and community debt advice has got a very important role to play for those that do want local or face-to-face debt advice. But what the consumer duties identified really is the more bumps you put in the road in terms of the client journey, the more complex something can become. So there are a number of debt solution providers on the Money Helper site that offer all of the debt solutions including the debt advice, so there's one journey. Uh, And I actually sometimes find it a bit strange that we end up introducing journeys that got multiple handoffs and clients get lost. And that's particularly true with debt relief orders at the moment. Now that there are two hubs, it's a complete mess. So you've got a backlog of cases from what would have been the first port of call, step change or pay plan, now having to refer them and you've got, you know, regulatory interest in what that journey actually looks like. So I'm a great believer if you've got, you know, effectively a one-stop shop and it meets all of the requirements laid down by the regulator and provides a good customer journey, which is critical to the duty, then we should be promoting that. And creditors understand that they've invested in smooth journeys, not signposting, that allow a client to move from their arrears collections department into a debt advice environment, into the debt solution, essentially in one journey, unless the client wants to break it up to either time to think. And all those providers will offer cooling off periods, which is so important that Sarah referenced, and an ability to reflect, to to look and read something that is in a language that they understand. Uh, and we've got a lot, long, long way to go, uh, and you know, before IVA proposals are suitable for most people with the average reading age. Similarly, suitability letters fit into that same category. So, so really important. The journey is smooth, and I do feel sometimes that the the current award process has missed a giant trick in terms of, you know, supporting the lifeboats that were there for a good reason that are able to offer all the holistic solutions in each legal jurisdiction. I would like to thank my panellists for giving me their precious time um, to speak on DRO or IVA, that is the question. My next podcast is going to be on the cost of fuel price. Um, Apart from that, thank you for listening to Debt Talk uh, with your host, Ripon Ray.